Part four of Phaedo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Bob Neufeld. Phaedo by Plato. Translated by Benjamin Jarrett. Part four. Must we not, said Socrates, ask ourselves what that is which, as we imagine, is liable to be scattered and about which we fear? And what again is that about which we have no fear? And then we may proceed further to inquire whether that which suffers dispersion is or is not of the nature of soul. Our hopes and fears as to our own souls will turn upon the answers to these questions. Very true, he said. Now, the compound or composite may be supposed to be naturally capable, as of being compounded, so also of being dissolved. But that which is uncompounded, and that only, must be, if anything is, indissoluble. Yes, I should imagine so, said Sebes. And the uncompounded may be assumed to be the same and unchanging, whereas the compound is always changing and never the same. I agree, he said. Then now let us return to the previous discussion. Is that idea or essence, which in the dialectical process we define as essence or true existence, whether essence of equality, beauty, or anything else, are these essences, I say, liable at times to some degree of change? Or are they each of them always what they are, having the same simple self-existent and unchanging forms, not admitting of variation at all, or in any way, or at any time? They must always be the same, Socrates, replied Sebes. And what would you say of the many beautiful, whether men, or horses, or garments, or any other things which are named by the same names, and may be called equal or beautiful? are they all unchanging and the same always or quite the reverse may they not rather be described as almost always changing and hardly ever the same either with themselves or with one another the latter replied Sebes, they are always in a state of change and these you can touch and see and perceive with the senses but the unchanging things you can only perceive with the mind they are invisible and are not seen. That is very true, he said. Well, then, added Socrates, let us suppose that there are two sorts of existences, one seen, the other unseen. Let us suppose them. The seen is the changing, and the unseen is the unchanging. That may also be supposed. And further, is not one part of us body and another part soul? to be sure, and to which class is the body more alike and akin? Clearly to the seen, no one can doubt that. And is the soul seen or not seen? Not by man, Socrates. And what we mean by seen and not seen, is that which is or is not visible to the eye of man? Yes, to the eye of man. And is the soul seen or not seen? Not seen. Unseen, then? Yes. Then the soul is more like to the unseen, and the body to the seen. That follows necessarily, Socrates. And were we saying not long ago that the soul, when using the body as an instrument of perception, 
that is to say, when using the sense of sight or hearing or some other sense, for the meaning of perceiving through the body is perceiving through the senses, were we not saying that the soul too is then dragged by the body into the region of the changeable, and wanders and is confused, the world spins round her, and she is like a drunkard when she touches change? Very true. And when returning into herself, she reflects, then she passes into the other world, the region of purity and eternity and immortality and unchangeableness, which are her kindred, and with them she ever lives, when she is by herself, and is not let or hindered. Then she ceases from her erring ways, and being in communion with the unchanging, is unchanging. And this state of the soul is called wisdom. That is well and truly said, Socrates, he replied. And to which class is the soul more nearly alike and akin, as far as may be inferred from this argument, as well as from the preceding one? I think, Socrates, that in the opinion of every one who follows the argument, the soul will be infinitely more like the unchangeable. Even the most stupid person will not deny that. And the body is more like the changing. Yes. Yet, once more, consider the matter in another light. When the soul and body are united, then nature orders the soul to rule and govern, and the body to obey and serve. Now which of these two functions is akin to the divine, and which to the mortal? Does not the divine appear to you to be that which naturally orders and rules, and the mortal to be that which is subject and servant? True. And which does the soul resemble? The soul resembles the divine, and the body the mortal. There can be no doubt of that, Socrates. Then reflect, Sebes, of all which has been said, is not this the conclusion, that the soul is in the very likeness of the divine, and immortal, and intellectual, and uniform, and indissoluble, and unchangeable, and that the body is in the very likeness of the human, and mortal, and unintellectual, and multiform, and dissoluble, and changeable? Can this, my dear Sebes, be denied? It cannot. But if it be true, then is not the body liable to speedy dissolution, and is not the soul almost or altogether indissoluble? Certainly. And do you further observe that after a man is dead, the body, or visible part of him, which is lying in the visible world, and is called a corpse, and would naturally be dissolved and decomposed and dissipated, is not dissolved or decomposed at once? but may remain for some time, nay, even for a long time, if the constitution be sound at the time of death, and the season of the year favourable. For the body, when shrunk and embalmed, as the manner is in Egypt, may remain almost entire through infinite ages, and even in decay there are still some portions, such as the bones and ligaments, which are practically indestructible. Do you agree? Yes. And is it likely that the soul, which is invisible, in passing to the place of the true Hades, which, like her, is invisible and pure and noble, and on her way to the good and wise God, whither, if God will, my soul is also soon to go, that the soul, I repeat, if this be her nature and origin, 
will be blown away and destroyed immediately on quitting the body, as many say. That can never be, my dear Simeus and Sebes. The truth, rather, is, that the soul which is pure at departing and draws after her no bodily taint, having never voluntary during life had connection with the body, which she is ever avoiding, herself gathered unto herself, and making such abstraction her perpetual study, which means that she has been a true disciple of philosophy, and therefore has in fact been always engaged in the practice of dying. For is not philosophy the practice of death? Certainly. That soul, I say, herself invisible, departs to the invisible world, to the divine and immortal and rational. Thither arriving, she is secure of bliss, and is released from the error and folly of men, their fears and wild passions, and all other human ills, and for ever dwells, as they say of the initiated, in company with the gods. Is this not true, Sabis? Yes, said Sabis, beyond a doubt. But the soul which has been polluted, and is impure at the time of her departure, and is the companion and servant of the body always, and is in love with and fascinated by the body and by the desires and pleasures of the body, until she is led to believe that the truth only exists in bodily form, which a man may touch and see and taste, and use for the purposes of his lusts, the soul, I mean, accustomed to hate and fear and avoid the intellectual principle which to the bodily eye is direct and invisible and can be attained only by philosophy do you suppose that a soul will depart pure and unalloyed impossible he replied she is held fast by the corporeal which the continual association and constant care of the body have wrought into her nature very true and this corporeal element, my friend, is heavy and weighty and earthy, and is that element of sight by which a soul is depressed and dragged down again into the visible world, because she is afraid of the invisible and of the world below, prowling about tombs and sepulchres, near which, as they tell us, are seen certain ghostly apparitions of souls which have not departed pure but are cloyed with sight, and therefore visible. That is very likely, Socrates. Yes, that is very likely, Sebes. And these must be the souls, not of the good, but of the evil, which are compelled to wander about such places in payment of the penalty of their former evil way of life, and they continue to wander until, through the craving after the corporeal which never leaves them, they are imprisoned finally in another body, and they may be supposed to find their prisons in the same natures which they have had in their former lives. What natures do you mean, Socrates? What I mean is that men who have followed after gluttony and wantonness and drunkenness, and have had no thought of avoiding them, would pass into asses and animals of that sort. What do you think? I think such an opinion to be exceedingly probable. And those who have chosen the portion of injustice and tyranny and violence will pass into wolves or into hawks and kites. Whether else can we suppose them to go? Yes, said Zebes, with such natures beyond question. 
and there is no difficulty, he said, in assigning to all of them places answering to their several natures and propensities. There is not, he said. Some are happier than others, and the happiest both in themselves and in the place to which they go are those who have practised the civil and social virtues which are called temperance and justice, and are acquired by habits and attention without philosophy and mind. Why are they the happiest? Because they may be expected to pass into some gentle and social kind which is like their own, such as bees or wasps or ants, or back into the form of man, and just and moderate men may be supposed to spring from them. Very likely. No one who has not studied philosophy, and who is not entirely pure at the time of his departure, is allowed to enter the company of the gods but the lover of knowledge only. And this is the reason, Simeus and Sebes, why the true votaries of philosophy abstain from all fleshly lusts, and hold out against them, and refuse to give themselves up to them. Not because they fear poverty or the ruin of their families, like the lovers of money and the world in general, nor like the lovers of power and honour, because they dread the dishonour or disgrace of evil deeds. No, Socrates, that would not become them, said Zebes. No, indeed, he replied, and therefore they who have any care of their own souls, and do not merely love moulding and fashioning the body, say farewell to all this. They will not walk in the ways of the blind, and when philosophy offers them purification and release from evil, they feel that they ought not to resist her influence, and whither she leads they turn and follow. What do you mean, Socrates? I will tell you, he said. The lovers of knowledge are conscious that the soul is simply fastened and glued to the body. Until philosophy received her, she could only view real existence through the bars of a prison, not in and through herself. She was wallowing in the mire of every sort of ignorance, and by reason of lust had become the principal accomplice in her own captivity. This was her original state, and then, as I was saying, and as the lovers of knowledge are well aware, philosophy, seeing how terrible was her confinement, of which she was to herself the cause, received and gently comforted her, and sought to release her, pointing out that the eye and the ear and the other senses are full of deception, and persuading her to retire from them and abstain from all but the necessary use of them, and be gathered up and collected into herself, biding her trust in herself, and her own pure apprehension of pure existence, and to mistrust whatever comes to her through other channels, and is subject to variation, for such things are visible and tangible, but what she sees in her own nature is intelligible and invisible and the soul of the true philosopher thinks that she ought not to resist this deliverance, and therefore abstains from pleasures and desires and pains and fears as far as she is able, reflecting that when a man has great joys or sorrows or fears or desires, he suffers from them not merely the sort of evil which might be anticipated, as, for example, the loss of his health or property which he has sacrificed to his lusts, but an evil greater far, which is the greatest and worst of all evils, 
and one of which he never thinks. What is it, Socrates? said Semmes. The evil is that when the feeling of pleasure or pain is most intense, the evil is that when the feeling of pleasure or pain is most intense, every soul of man imagines the objects of this intense feeling to be then plainest and truest. But this is not so. They are really the things of sight. Very true. And is not this the state in which the soul is most enthralled by the body? How so? Why? because each pleasure and pain is a sort of nail which nails and rivets the soul to the body, until she becomes like the body, and believes that to be true which the body affirms to be true, and from agreeing with the body, and having the same delights, she is obliged to have the same habits and haunts, and is not likely ever to be pure at her departure to the world below, but is always infected by the body and so she sinks into another body, and there germinates and grows, and has therefore no part in the communion of the divine and pure and simple. Most true, Socrates, answered Semmes. And this, Semmes, is the reason why the true lovers of knowledge are temperate and brave, and not for the reason which the world gives. Certainly not. Certainly not. The soul of a philosopher will reason in quite another way. She will not ask philosophy to release her, in order that, when released, she may deliver herself up again to the thraldom of pleasures and pains, doing a work only to be undone again, weaving instead of unweaving her Penelope's web. But she will calm passion, and follow reason, and dwell in the contemplation of her, beholding the true and divine which is not a matter of opinion, and thence deriving nourishment. Thus she seeks to live while she lives, and after death she hopes to go to her own kindred and to that which is like her, and to be freed from human ills. Never fear, Simeus and Sabis, that a soul which has been thus nurtured and has had these pursuits will at her departure from the body be scattered and blown away by the winds, and be nowhere and nothing. When Socrates had done speaking, for a considerable time there was silence. He himself appeared to be meditating, as most of us were, on what had been said. Only Sabes and Simeas spoke a few words to one another, and Socrates, observing them, asked what they thought of the argument, and whether there was anything wanting. For, said he, there are many points still open to suspicion and attack, if any one were disposed to sift the matter thoroughly. Should you be considering some other matter, I say no more. But, if you are still in doubt, do not hesitate to say exactly what you think, and let us have anything better which you can suggest. And if you think that I can be of any use, allow me to help you. Simeus said, I must confess, Socrates that doubts did arise in our minds, and each of us was urging and inciting the other to put the question which we wanted to have answered, and which neither of us liked to ask, fearing that our importunity might be troublesome under present such a time. Socrates replied with a smile, Oh, Simeus, what are you saying? I am not very likely to persuade other men that I do not regard my present situation as a misfortune, 
if I cannot even persuade you that I am no worse off now than at any other time in my life? Will you not allow that I have as much of the spirit or prophecy in me as the swans? For they, when they perceive that they must die, having sung all their life long, do then sing more lustily than ever, rejoicing in the thought that they are about to go away to the God whose ministers they are. But men, because they are sometimes afraid of death, slanderously affirm of the swans that they sing a lament at the last, not considering that no bird sings when cold or hungry or in pain, not even the nightingale, nor the swallow, nor yet the hoopoe, which are said, indeed, to tune a lay of sorrow, though I do not believe this to be true of them any more than of the swans. But because they are sacred to Apollo, they have the gift of prophecy, and anticipate the good things of another world, wherefore they sing and rejoice in that day more than they ever did before. And I, too, believing myself to be the consecrated servant of the same God, and the fellow-servant of the swans, and thinking that I have received from my master gifts of prophecy which are not inferior to theirs, would not go out of life less merrily than the swans. Never mind, then, if this be your only objection, but speak and ask anything which you like, while the eleven magistrates of Athens allow. Very good, Socrates, said Simeus, then I will tell you my difficulty, and Sabes will tell you his. End of part four.